Hey, Outliers. Welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy, where I interview entrepreneurs, investors, and icons in the top 1% of their field, all to decode what they've mastered and tease out the habits, influences, and lessons that have propelled them to the top. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, we explore what it's like to broker everything from partnerships to acquisitions and back founders at the earliest stages with Rishi Garg of Mayfield. We explore Rishi's background in corporate and business development at iconic companies like Square, Twitter, and Kayak.com, including how he brokered 12 acquisitions at Twitter in less than 18 months, how founders should think about partnerships and M&A discussions, and why most large acquisitions are years in the making, and why Mayfield focuses on investing at the earliest stages and is so people-focused in their approach to venture capital. As a reminder, you can find the show notes with links to everything that we discuss, as well as the full transcript at outlieracademy.com. And if you haven't, follow us on Twitter at Outlier Academy. Let's jump into the episode. Rishi, welcome to Outlier Academy. I've been looking forward to this interview for so long. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. So let's jump right in because there's a lot that we're going to cover today. And I think what's exciting about this episode is it'll in part be a deep dive on business development and the BD role and what that is, because you've got deep experience there. And then we're also going to spend a bunch of time talking about investing with your work at Mayfield. So to kick things off, I mean, you've got quite a background. Can you give everyone that's maybe not familiar just a high level sketch of you have kind of your journey? Sure. Yeah. Just kind of real quick. I caught the internet bug, I would say in the late 90s when I was a student at Stanford and since then, I've kind of worked at a bunch of companies, I would say with a product-first approach, but always as a business kind of deal guy. So I was at Highland Capital, a venture capital firm in the early days, where I learned a lot, learned a lot of respect for the business. And then I had kind of like a 13, 14-year operating career starting at MTV in the early days of the social web, where I helped bring MTV or tried to help bring MTV into the social world with Facebook and MySpace and stuff like that. A little bit of time at Google. I then started a company that was venture-backed called Fansnap. That was a live event ticket search marketplace as a founder. After we sold that, I ended up at Square, where I met you, where I was the first head of business development, kind of at the end of 2011, early 2012. Ended up starting the corp dev team there as well, and then went on to Twitter, where I ran corporate development and strategy globally for the company right after the IPO. Was there for a little while, took a little time off, and the venture capital business called me back. And so now here I am. I co-head the consumer practice in Mayfield. We do some fintech. We do some stuff all over the place. We're seven partners. Everyone's a little dangerous at everything, but that's kind of my focus area. Amazing. And I'm curious, I guess I wasn't super clear that, you know, you had previous experience in venture capital and then went back to the kind of operating side or went over to the operating side. Was there an impetus there or an itch you wanted to scratch? <laughs> I was very lucky because I worked for a guy named Paul Mater, who was the founder of Highland Capital. And I just had an incredible experience with Paul as a mentor. It was a really flat firm at the time, seven partners and four associates. So I got to work on everything. And I just developed through Paul so much respect and honor for the entrepreneur journey, like just how hard it is, how important it is to have partners that do the job well, how important empathy is, and also how hard it was. And he was really successful, but I could see every day that you have to fight for your, your life every day. And I just developed a lot of belief that it could be a really good power for good. So I always kind of thought I'd come back to it because I love the job. And you know, the other thing that kind of compelled me was after having the privilege of working at some of these companies, one thing that really struck me is that how you start plays such a big role in how you end up. And who knows how long the Silicon Valley is going to last as an idea or as a place. But I think it's going to be around and important for the next 50 years at least, whatever we can tell. And if you can, I think, as a supporter of an entrepreneur, 
play a role in supporting the right kind of people, helping them make great decisions, you have a chance to have real ripple effects, I think, in the economy. And certainly, a lot of founders can attest to what happens if your partner isn't a great partner. So it really felt like a noble enterprise to me to be in the seat. And that's kind of what drew me to it. I want to now go and, you know, dive deep into the business development side. And part of why I was so excited for this is, you know, I think anyone listening will have heard the term BD or business development. And yet I would bet that if I asked anyone what that means, I would either get, you know, very different answers or I'd get really foggy, vague answers. So just to start, I thought we would play the game of like, what is the simple definition? It can be your own personal definition of what BD is in a company and maybe how that's different than corporate development and kind of flesh that out for us. Yeah, it's probably easy to start with corporate development. Typically, corp dev is sort of M&A. That means mergers and acquisitions, selling your company, buying other companies. Usually, corp dev teams exist at companies that have achieved some level of scale and are starting to be acquisitive. So let's put that aside for a second, even though there's some interesting similarities between BizDev and CorpDev. For startups, you often have business development, at least concepts, opportunities, or ideas pretty early. Sometimes you have business development people pretty early, depending on what the needs are of the company. BizDev is anything that where a company needs to have an external relationship in order to be in business. So it can be as simple as an affiliate deal to get paid 3% from Amazon because part of your business model is doing that. It can be convincing Chase Payment Tech and MasterCard and Visa to support the existence of your business, which is to accept all major credit cards for small brick and mortar companies through a smartphone. So there's a whole range of partnerships that can be in place, but that's kind of the idea of what business development is. And you know, I think it's a little bit different for every kind of company, enterprise software companies, sometimes infrastructure software companies often, not always, but often can exist in a web of relationships that's really important. And there's a set of gatekeepers who are helping you sort of drive your business into the hands of the customer. But you know, most of our industry as startups ends up being about how do you create an incredible product that allows you to tell a story to a customer that is unique, sparks interest, is exceptional. And, and so the, the interesting interplay that comes for a startup is what is the right role of business development? When is the right time to have BD people? How do you make them effective? And there's all kinds of different ways to handle that. I think an interesting other way to maybe another lens to maybe use to look at the role is, you know, I'd be curious for your take on what makes someone good at the job of business development. Because in some ways it seems kind of like pseudo sales or like a Trojan horse of sales. In some ways, it just seems like old fashioned, you know, relationship building. I remember at Square, you know, there was a lot of very intricate, very strategic business development that had to be done, just literally building relationships with all the big card issuers and payment rails and trying to do this thing where we're trying to get them on our side while at the same time assuring them that we're not competing with them. So maybe that's an example, but I'd be curious for just what are some of the core skills that really make someone great? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So let's start with what roughly, what does BD typically comprise? There's usually roughly two kinds. There's sort of what I call foundational business development, which is business development that you need to be in existence. And then there's distribution deals, like a rough patterning. The foundational business development is exactly what you're describing, Daniel, where in a lot of ways, Square served at the pleasure of these quasi-regulators, Visa, MasterCard, especially Visa, on the credit issuing side and on the network side, and a Chase Payment Tech as our processor. And those are all the deals that Jack and, and Keith and his team did in the early days. So 
dancing with elephants so that you can find a shared sense of purpose so that you can navigate what could be sort of frenemy dynamics such that in this kind of regulatory environment you can enable existence was really a, d a delicate dance, an important dance, one that you have to do generally with a certain amount of care, maybe a certain amount of seniority and credibility. And so that was sort of the foundational BD piece of it. The distribution side were things like T-Square. Again, as an example, a distribution deal with Apple, where we started to be sold in the Apple stores around the country. Another example of a Square distribution deal was Starbucks, where there was a co-marketing agreement for payment processing done with Starbucks back in 2012 and 2013. The foundational BD deals are the ones that are really important. And usually these are done by founders or quasi-founders because in certain markets, not in all markets, but in certain markets, you have to have those relationships in place so you can exist. A lot of fintech companies have crucial business development deals to do with a sponsor bank, if they're going to be a lender or a card issuer, or the rails or you know service that's enabling that to happen. So that's usually a sale, if you will, that's done by a vision, enabling a shared vision, articulating a shared vision. The most interesting deals like that are done when you're bringing a new vision to the market, the way they squared it in the early days, and identifying a common enemy. In that case, it was cash and driving cash out of the system. But also, you know, what you'll see a lot of times is that as people are competing at the application layer for customers, a lot of those kind of foundational relationships have gone from being business development deals to essentially being access to an API. I mean, that's essentially what Stripe does, right? So, you know, I would say that business development as a foundational reality for being in business as a consumer company has become, generally speaking, a little bit easier and less common as like a, a, a gatekeeper to being in business. And that's why you've been able to see companies like Stripe, you know, foundational companies with very young founders who don't necessarily have a long history with a gatekeeper, being able to be in business and compete with great applications. And that's kind of, you know, I think speaks to what you need to do if you're that kind of a BD person. There's distribution deals. And I think this is where people tend to get stuck a little bit more because once you have any modicum of success, or even if you don't have modicum of success, if you're starting to try to figure out ways to drive traffic or generate adoption. It's very, very tempting to look to people who already have adoption or a customer base and partner with them because you want access to their customer base. And this is where you run into trouble more commonly because of two things. One, if you're slightly you know, successful, you end up getting called by all these big companies who want to do deals with you. They want access to whatever secret sauce you have that's kind of happening. We saw this happen a lot at Square. And someone needs to kind of catch all that stuff and figure out what's important, right? And at the same time, if you're the company with the BD person who's trying to access the bigger company's customers, you're trying to grow. And so there's a lot of pressure to find new ways to grow. So that's where it's important to be clear about what you're trying to achieve. And I define the purpose of a BD person, which is to say, to take something amorphous and abstract and put it on the rails, right? You try to take the transportation analogies from something that's sort of a boat on the ocean where you're roughly trying to make it to your destination to a car that's driving on the highway to a train track that's like something repeatable, very clear destination, very clear where it's going. And so the skill sets then are required are both relationship development so that you can actually manage those things and the deal skills associated with that, but also a certain understanding of the strategy of the company because the biggest problems come into play when founders and BD people are unjudicious about how to spend time because everything looks interesting. And having a really clear sense of not only 
the salesmanship skills and let me get deals done and, and that piece of it, but also what's best for the business and how do I put numbers against that so that it can become repeatable? That's actually the goal of the organization. And, you know, it takes a lot of alignment. Like one of the biggest problems in a BD org is that you're kind of gold on whether or not you're doing something. But a lot of times the best thing to do is to not do anything. And it takes time and effort on both sides to kind of build trust between a BD lead, you know, the founding team so that you can be seen as actually furthering the business, even though you're not necessarily getting, you know, paper signed. I love this because there's already so many parallels between the approach you need to take from sitting on your hands to identifying what's truly important in the BD world. And obviously, there's a lot of connections and parallels there with the world of investing. So I'm excited to explore that soon. One thing I wanted to do to kind of build off of what you were just sharing is maybe compare and contrast BD at an early stage versus BD at a later stage. And what are the differences there? BD at an early stage is, well, BD at an early stage, think about an early stage startup, usually just trying to feel around for ways to get things going, right? So on the foundational side, like I said, you're trying to appeal to someone who's a gatekeeper and say, we need to be a business, please allow us to do that. This is Kayak going to the airlines and saying, list on Kayak back in 2004, it's Square and the payment relationships at the beginning. The distribution deals tend to come at a startup with like really big companies. And this is where the impedance mismatch starts to come into play because big companies have very different goals than small companies, but there's usually a BD team at a big company that is tasked with the idea of working with small companies. And so there's a few key sort of pitfalls then that occur when a small company works with a big company. One is that if you do a deal with like a company with a lot of users, let's say Yelp or Yahoo or something like that, well, all of a sudden they're most of your user base. And you can easily confuse the BD deal for product market fit because users are coming in through the door. And all of a sudden you've misaligned whether or not you are truly making progress in connecting with your customer base. The second one is big companies are full of executives. They're doing stuff with small companies. Executives change all the time. Strategy changes all the time. And so when you have these relationships with a big company and you know an executive leaves for a bigger job or changes roles in, within the org, whatever it is, all of a sudden you may find yourself without the sponsor that you needed to make that deal successful. And suddenly you've placed a big bet on this relationship that no longer is sustainable anymore. And that kind of leads to the third one, which is it's very common for startups not to account for the hidden costs of deal management. So you say to a a large third party, hey, sure, let's do a BD deal. We'll do a nice integration. It'll take, you know, one month of time, two engineers. We'll still work on our core business on our own and we'll do this BD deal to get some users into the door. Well, 99 out of 100% of the time, that turns into a much longer project with many more resources that the startup can ill afford to have. But it's such a big deal, you can't say no and just stop it because of the sunk cost sort of dynamics that are at play there. You've sold it to your board, you've maybe even announced the deal, et cetera, et cetera. So it can be really, really challenging to do that. There's a couple ways to sort of handle that as a startup if you're doing on the startup side. One is what I said earlier, which is be thinking all the time about how to turn this kind of bespoke relationship into something repeatable. One, to diversify yourself so you're not just relying on one potential distribution partner, but also so that you can ultimately hand it over into a playbook that you can staff appropriately, get it out of abstract land and get it into concrete land. A great example is how Square started out with a trial balloon with the Apple Store selling the Square card reader. And then over time, really mechanized that so that you know we could go from 5,000 to 100,000 stores around the country in the course of a couple of years. The other thing you can do is manage and limit get live resources. It's really hard to do, but like really, really tightly constrain how much time you're spending on it. And once you start to go outside the bounds, 
reinvestigate the opportunity and make sure it sings for its supper. And then the third way to handle it, which I think is really important, is make sure that you are keeping your direct relationship with the consumer, your primary goal, and that any distribution deal is in service of your primary relationship. A great example I like to use is the Kayak AOL deal. When Kayak got founded back in 2004, to get some traffic, they did a deal with AOL to power travel search. And it ran into all the problems that we're talking about, but it was a lot of traffic. What Kayak was really, really focused on doing is using AOL traffic to generate Kayak users on their own, to make the product better, to figure out how to get Kayak to work on SEM, which was a nascent opportunity on Google at the time. And they really leveraged the AOL relationship to build Kayak effectively by keeping a really tight focus on who was the first alter they needed to pray for, the direct relationship with the consumer. So that's a quick primer on BD at a small company. Daniel, when you think about BD at a big company, do you mean a large company working with small companies or a larger startup? It's a great question. I think either of those, whichever you think is most interesting. I think what I was trying to draw out of that is you're obviously focused on very different things. You know, whether it's, I imagine maybe at a large company, you're focused on maintaining your position in the market, you know, kind of advantaging yourself by getting access to or working with the best startups, but it's just a very different mentality. So I guess I was just curious to explore that a little bit. No, it totally is. And it, it also depends when you're a large company on whether or not, you know, there's BD relationships that relate to the infrastructure and the technology of your business all the time. You're always trying to find customers and potential technology partners and that sort of thing. But then there's also what happens a lot of big companies is they want to work with startups who have you know, interesting products, interesting growth that they can showcase to make their products more successful for their audience. And like I said, there's whole teams doing that. And I've worked on those teams and it's hard because in those capacities and roles in BD at a larger company of any kind, you find yourself trying really hard not to succumb to some of these impedance mismatch challenges, but it's really tough because these are not anyone's fault. They're just inherent to the job of business development at a big company. But even at a big company, what you're trying to do is, if you're working with small companies, is to the best of your ability, turn BD relationships into programs. So that's why you see at so many companies, for example, at Twitter, there is a DevRel relationship with developers as opposed to doing one-off sort of BD deals with each of them. And that sounds kind of obvious now, but before kind of the age of the API, each of those relationships were done sort of on a one-off basis, right? And you had teams of BD people kind of doing that. The big thing at a growth stage company and kind of square in the 2012, 2014 early days was a good example of this, is just this eyes are bigger than your mouth problem. Because there is just so many damn opportunities once you're onto something to partner with people that are of all sizes and jurisdictions. And staying focused on what the point is of these deals is really, really crucial, hard to do. I think there's two jobs of a BD person at that stage. One is kind of the tops down. Like, here's a strategy of the company. How do we partner with people to achieve our strategy more quickly? But there's also the important bottoms up role, which is as you're out there in the marketplace meeting with companies who are doing innovative things, how do you help to see around corners for your management team so that you can be ahead of technology curves, ahead of consumer zeitgeist changes, and then ultimately maybe even lead to M&A? So we talked a little bit about the difference between corporate development and business development. And, you know, that business development is maybe less about M&A, more about developing relationships. But for founders listening, I mean, you know, typically, if you're thinking about a venture-backed company, there's kind of two traditional exits. And, you know, one is getting acquired, which is obviously, I don't know if any founder, I don't, I don't think any founder starts off their business saying, oh, one day it'd be wonderful to get acquired. They want to build something on their own, build something independent and durable. But that is an outcome. So for someone listening who's 
I guess, what advice would you have for founders about how to manage that and how to go about just always having that option of selling your business to someone that might be a strategic acquirer in your back pocket and how to think about M&A or maybe advice for people that could have their business sold in the future or are actively pursuing that? It's a great question and a long one. And I've done a couple of talks about this that you can find online, but I'll try to summarize it relatively quickly. So the first thing to mention is there's this old trope that great companies are bought, not sold, which means that if you've built something of value, people will notice. And if your ultimate destination is an acquisition, then that will end up happening if you wanted to, because people will come knocking on your door. Okay. As opposed to necessarily building something explicitly to get sold. Now, I found founders in different markets end up building something with the goal of getting sold all the time. And indeed, 80% of the exits, even in our crazy SPAC IPO world we're in right now, are M&A. So it's the most likely way to do it. But as you said, certainly in Mayfield, and I think great founders in general, try to build companies that are sustaining, durable, category-defining businesses and can ultimately be standalone public companies. So what do you do if you're a founder? Well, there's a whole funnel, upfront funnel part of the process, if you will, and then there's the execution. On the upfront part of the process, I will say that something like, I don't know, 14 out of the 15 M&A deals I did at Twitter were for relationships that were in place with people at the company for at least a year, if not more, sometimes for decades. So there's a really strong relationship component to being acquired. And so what I always tell founders is, if you're in an ecosystem that has big, well-funded competitors, people that you think may be useful to talk to as potential acquirers, then it's a good idea to start building those relationships far ahead of time. Don't wait until you know, oh, our Series A process didn't work out and we want to sell, or we have to decide if we want to go long or sell the company because we're at the cusp of the next round of financing, any one of those milestones. Think about it ahead of time. And an easy way to do that is, one, you can align your biz dev relationships if you need biz dev relationships with corp dev relationships because they're often one and the same. So when you're meeting with people from a biz dev standpoint, be thinking about presenting yourself in a way that makes you interesting and attractive as a leader to the acquirer. Another way to do it is to think, hey, how do I make sure that every couple of months, every quarter, I'm just spending a little bit of time with at least one acquirer. That way you're starting to sow the seeds of a relationship that can potentially be harvested in the future. One of the comments and questions I get a lot from founders is like, well, how much should I talk about my business? How much should I give away in these conversations? And my rough heuristic on that is, you're there to actually listen more than you are to speak. And that's where it can be really valuable for you. So come in with your standard pitch and then ask questions. And by asking questions, you'll be able to understand how the buyer potentially thinks about your business, and you'll be able to tailor and understand how their language intersects with your language so that you can speak from the same vocabulary, such that if downstream it turns out to have an acquisition, it doesn't feel like there's a big cultural mismatch because you're always talking the same language already. So there's some interesting sort of elements of that that I think are important. On the actual acquisition front, there's a long list of things to do, but a couple of the basic bits of feedback I have to founders are, one, get great advisors. Most founders, you know, even if they've sold a company before, need good advice and you know, have a great lawyer. Sometimes a banker makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. Venture investors who've been through the ringer a few times are usually really good folks to kind of get advice from. So really lean on your advisors, get great advisors in the process. And then you know, there's signals of interest. As you're going through an M&A process, be looking for clarity of strategy, be looking for escalating meetings, and be looking for increased pace because those things together will give you a sense that the buyer is actually really interested in what you're doing. And then you can trust that it's actually you know, 
real insight there. And you can use that to start to get other buyers to the table, which is always the greatest leverage in any M&A process as a seller. Keeping in mind, obviously, that there's always a lot of ups and downs and all arounds before the end. So the other thing to always remember as a founder who's thinking about selling a company is the deal's not done until it's done. <laughs> so make sure you run all the way to the tape because certainly there's many unfortunate stories of founders who, because of a cha- one change or another, have been left at the altar at the end of the process and maybe don't have the capital to keep going because they haven't been accounting for that reality. Fantastic advice. I'm not even going to try to recap, but you have just so many layers there. And we'll definitely link in the show notes for anyone listening to those talks online. Just before we move on and kind of change gears and and switch to the investing side, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you really want to make sure to get across? Or I guess, is there a way to kind of put a point on all the BD stuff we've been talking about for people listening? That's a good question. There's only one thing I keep coming back to, which is that the purpose of the startup community is to take a tiny amount of human and financial capital and create a single product, usually, a single thing, an insight, that through incredible intensity can be used to break open a market and achieve unusual scale. And you know, every company is a little bit different. Certainly sales matter tremendously at SaaS companies and at infrastructure companies. But in the end, that's what you're trying to do. That's why our industry exists. That's why it destroys old categories and creates new ones. So you know, I talk about praying at the first altar. I think my career has been defined by always praying at the product altar first, even as a business development person. And I think that's really important to keep the most important thing, the most important thing. Hard to do sometimes and all this different Michigas, but I think that's the one takeaway I'd have. I think that's also how you get bought and not sold. <laughs> yes. like having something of, you know, immense value. And typically that is a, totally. a product that an enormous amount of effort has gone into. But look how, I mean, I always use this example, you know, Mark Zuckerberg knew the Instagram founders for years before the deal happened over a weekend. The same thing with the WhatsApp founders. Mark made a point of, I think, meeting the WhatsApp founders once a quarter for, I think, three years before that deal came together very, very quickly. So that's just the dynamic, right? These things are always about relationships, especially on the M&A side. I guess one final point that I always like to add, which is so funny, is that I think people undervalue in the course of an M&A process how important just the team is. No matter how well you're performing as a seller, as a company, in the end, M&A is a lot about the acquirer hiring a management team, hiring a leader, like you're interviewing for a job. And a lot of times what a CEO will see when he buys a company is that person's going to be great for my work and my management team. And it's amazing to me how binary outcomes are on the M&A front just based on that, regardless of performance. It's not like a company with 50 million bucks versus a company with 20 million bucks has, you know, similar sort of valuation profiles and sort of linear chances of being acquired. The $50 million one with a great team has a 100% chance of being acquired. And the $20 million one with like an okay team has like a close to zero chance of being acquired. <laughs> like that's the way it works. So Very binary. Yeah. So going back to storytelling on the founder as a seller, it becomes, it's just as crucial on the M&A side, if not more so than any other time in the company's life story. That was fantastic. We packed in a ton there. So now switching over, I guess just to start, you know, I want to explore a little bit of your work at Mayfield and maybe to start. So you have this initial VC experience, you then go and have a, a long, you know, operating experience. You take a little bit of a break. What brought you back and what made it so that Mayfield was the firm that you said yes to? Yeah, I inadvertently did a little bit of a survey course around the venture business. And I think my original feeling was, boy, there's a lot of venture capital and there's a lot of money chasing a lot of deals. And hey, is this market crowded? You know, How do I make my own way in the business, et cetera? And there's a few things I ended up coming back to, which really are about, for me at least, 
my personal journey, what really mattered to me, I cared about being early because I felt like you could have a really big impact when you're early with a company. I cared about backing founders that were extremely mission-driven, where they were doing some good in the world because I felt like if you could be someone that could play a role in that, that would be really valuable. So I was looking for a mission-driven firm, a firm that had showed with their investments, with their longevity, that they were also values-driven. I personally wanted a place that was had a high team quotient where everyone worked together to work on deals. Venture capital can be really lonely. And so I looked for evidence that there was a small team that was kind of kicking ass as a group. I wanted a this sounds a little bit funny now because there's so much success in the venture business that's happened over the last four years, but it was important to me to find a firm that was just like really successful with the current team. And also, this was really important to me, a group of people that wanted to be the best in their business every day. Because one of the things I loved about being in a startup is you are trying to get better every single day. You're trying to sharpen yourself every single day. And a firm that had those same dynamics and had a capacity for change instead of resting on their laurels. When you apply all that, oh, there's one other thing I should probably mention. I decided, even though I had a background working at large companies in M&A, and you might think that growth capital was a good place for me, I really wanted to be early. And that was because I perceived that as capital markets ebb and flow and change and things going out of favor, capital would enter and leave an industry. But you know, seed and series A stock is often the hardest stock to buy. It's where the least is known. It's where you, you know, you can't just win by spraying money around and praying. You have to have real insight or or maybe not real insight, at least. You have to be able to have conviction and to make a concentrated number of bets to be successful. And I think that just appealed to me. There's something about the masochism of that that appealed to me. I also felt really durable, Like being able to partner with an entrepreneur at the very early stages before everything's figured out is something that would always be there. It'd be there as long as entrepreneurship was alive. And so that that was an important thing for me as well. And, you know, there's a lot of great firms in the Valley, and I was really fortunate that the Mayfield Partnership, which checked all those boxes, invited me to join. And we're going to talk about, you know, some of the particular dynamics and kind of focuses and the culture there. But I want to ask one more question, which is, you know, so you have this gap in your experience of having early experience in venture and then coming back to venture. I'm curious for your observations on what changed during that time and what didn't change. Oh, a lot changed. Well, a lot's changed in the last four and a half years. So like I said earlier, a lot more money. One of the biggest changes from the early 2000s to call it 2016, 2017, the current, the modern venture age, is that there was a lot more space for collaboration in the early 2000s, probably pre-1998 as well. It was very common for venture firms to work together on a round, for a round to have 40% dilution. I remember one of the first deals I ever got to kind of work on when I was a Highland Capital in 2002, a company called Improvada had three investors in the Series A, each with 20% ownership. And that was like a tranched deal, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, that was just it was a different time. Obviously, post-internet bust, it was a different time from a deal perspective. But there's just a lot of like in-deal collaboration in the early stages. Obviously, now there's just not enough room for that kind of collaboration from firms. And so it, it really is a thing, you know, you're fighting to win a deal and it's extremely competitive and I think more competitive than it's ever been. You know, the other thing I'd say is that the game has really changed in terms of it was in the, for a very long time, really until about 2009, I would say, a bit of a, you know, sort of a clubby atmosphere in the venture business. People were in the business for a long time. There was hierarchies in the venture business and that sort of thing. I think Andreessen and their focus on leveraging PR really changed the game on that. There was a 
it was almost a PR was a little bit anathema, like kind of blowing your horn was a little bit, you know, uncouth in the venture business. And that changed, right? Having this very broad public persona, redefining the venture role to be building a following and be building a public brand, even as I think we've seen, even without necessarily a long track record of investing success, which is actually the norm now. If you look at the best investors in our industry, the vast majority of them don't have big online presences or blogs, you know, but that certainly is a strategy today to get access to deals and to sort of start to build the kind of relationships that get a portfolio together. So I think that's indicative of the times, but it's an example of how sort of new capital and new entrants have really changed the game. I want to dig into something that, you know, I find fascinating about Mayfield, which is literally when you go on the website, one of the first things that's locked up right with the logo is people first. And, you know, we talked initially, you talked about this framework of the stack rank of what you guys care about is people, product, then market. Why is that so important to Mayfield? And if you can flesh out that stack rank a little bit of people, product, market. Yeah, sure. Well, I think it goes back to you know, and every firm's different on this, but you ask yourself, why are you in business? Like, why do you get up every morning and do this thing? Well, at Mayfield, we've got a couple of things that are really core to what we do. The first thing is that we are extremely values-driven investors. We've got something called conscious capital, which you can learn about on our website. It's not something we totally talk about all the time, but it's inherent in kind of the deals that we do in that we're not trying to do deals that are only great economic outcomes, but deals that also help put people in business that help to further human and planetary evolution. It's sort of in the water here uh, on how we try to do the job. And so if you're doing that, well, you know, your product and your market are great things to evaluate, but honestly, that's just about the values of the person, right? That's the who that you're investing in. And so we spend a lot of time really getting to know the people that we invest in because that's the only way to know whether or not you actually have aligned values right? Anyone can say anything in a one-hour pitch. It's really the depth of thinking and the depth of time that you spend that start to build a relationship. The second thing is that we are early stage investors. And the earlier you are in the investing landscape, the less data you have on the product and market side necessarily to be able to underwrite an investment decision. So just by nature of our focus on that, we've been able to, I think, really hyper-focus on how do we pick incredible people and get a chance to work with incredible people. And that's been, I think it's also a function of like the firm being around for a long time. We're 52 years old, founded in 1969. We're on our fourth generation of leadership here at the firm. And like the thing that's been consistent throughout all of that is that as early stage investors, we were just trying to back incredible people. So there's also just a history of, of thinking about that stuff and being able to do that. We just did an analysis you know, to ask ourselves this question. And it turns out like over the last 10 years, about 70% of our deals have been either founding investments, that is the first money in the company at a corporation or pre-launch. Like there's not a product launched yet. So it's a little bit unusual, I think, in our ecosystem, but it's it really is just kind of how we do business. And so I think that's where we spend a lot of our time is trying to hone our normative perceptions of founder quote unquote quality so that we can get really excited about the people we back. It is definitely a falling in love process. I wish I could call it something else. I, I just want to call it what it is because there's an emotionality to getting involved with the founder and deciding you're going to be partners together for the next 10 years or whatever it takes that drives the quality of the relationship. And I think we just really key off of that here at Mayfield. I know something you said that I loved when we were you know, talking initially about what we might discuss in this interview is this idea that the ultimate secret is for founders to have trust in investors when you're in the trenches. And so obviously as an investor, you're trying to build that trust from day one. Maybe share a little bit more about that idea and how important that is. You know, one of the other ways that our industry has changed a little bit to some degree 
is that you now have firms that promise a lot of different kinds of value add through large teams that are you know there to help you with various things and there certainly that can be very valuable but you know the most important thing that we believe is the case for a founder is that when they bring a capital partner around the table a capital partner they cannot easily get rid of it's much easier to get out of a marriage than it is to get rid of your board member when you have a company when you have that level of relationship this very intimate relationship with someone who is going to be with you on your journey to make your baby into something real all you have is trust that is the only substrate to be able to create value for the company because it's through that trust that you can hold the mirror up to the entrepreneur when they need that so that they can clearly see their strengths and weaknesses it's through that trust that you can support the entrepreneur and explain to them that you have their back and you're in their corner even when they may not feel like it or even when there's a tough time and have the entrepreneur actually believe that truly you are in their corner it is through that trust that an investor or any supporter of a company is able to say i don't know the answer but we're going to work together to go figure out how to get the answer right and i think everyone can see that when that truth is there that intimacy is there it shows up when an investor is trying to recruit someone for the company it's when they're trying to get feedback to the management team it's when they're trying to you know help new investors get excited about the opportunity so that's the substrate that's the only thing that actually matters and it's it's hard one it's easily lost and it's the thing to really respect in this whole crazy world we're in I love the point, I mean, just to, I guess, flesh it out a little bit more, but I love the point that there are a lot of firms that promise a lot of different value add. And at the end of the day, at least in my experience, that typically is just a fantastic relationship you typically have with one or two people at that firm, that they are true champions for you, that you have immense trust and respect for them, that they can collaborate with you and as an objective thought partner and, and help you see it. So, I mean, I, I yeah, to me, it absolutely rings true that at the end of the day, it's optimizing for that personal relationship as opposed to promising this kind of vague amorphous value you add. That's totally right. And you know, one thing we also say, and it's another thing I've learned over the years that we want to work with entrepreneurs who want to work with us. You know, if an entrepreneur looks at their capital partners as quote unquote dumb money, or they, they're certainly a zeitgeist to some degree and earned sort of reputation, I think that that's negative about VCs were called the dark side, all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of those stories, a lot of those experiences are totally, totally valid. But, you know, in the end, if you are taking money from a capital partner of any kind, they're a partner of yours, right? And, you know, and the intentionality on both sides to make that relationship work is a really important starting point so that that can be a really productive relationship. And when it's a really productive relationship, it's really wonderful. I know, obviously, you're focused on the consumer side. You have a really you know, impressive, interesting track record of the investments you've made today. For someone listening who has a business in the consumer space, what would be your pitch of why to come to Mayfield? And what are you really excited about maybe looking at there? Oh, yeah, well, that's great. Well, you know, the number one reason to come to Mayfield, I think, is it's easy for us to say stuff about what we do. We always just refer entrepreneurs to the people we work with because there's nothing like knowing what it's like when you're in the trenches with somebody. And we think that those stories and the authenticity of, of that, that's what we try to earn every day. And, and that's where I think we earn our keep. But we're also extremely thesis driven. We take a lot of time to get to know markets. We take a lot of time to try to understand patterns. And we try to develop relationships so that we can be kind of the first call of the entrepreneur. So all those play a role in sort of our ability to win deals and to see things that other people don't see. When it comes to what we're focused on, I mean, it is a really interesting moment for a consumer. If I can talk about that for a second, you know, 
these things kind of come in waves. And if you look back at the last 25 years, which is consumer internet investing, which is really when it all started, 27 years, something like that, 1994, when Netscape went public, there's been a few waves. The first one was the internet, okay? And then that, after the dot-com bust had a bit of a, you know, had a bit, a bit of a lull. And then there was kind of a mini wave with SEM-based e-commerce companies in 2004 and a little bit of a social wave between 2004 to 2007 that after the financial crisis in the early sort of mid-2000s, 2008, was a mini wave around social games and stuff like that on Facebook. But then you had the iPhone. And so mobile was kind of a third wave and a big wave, the second big wave after the internet that kind of took hold after the App Store came out on July 10th, 2008. And then you had kind of the gig economy wave, which was, was kind of in part and parcel with the mobile wave, but, but a little bit separate as well. That kind of came through fruition as a mini wave on mobile. So what do we learn from that? Well, you basically have like a Cambrian explosion of entrepreneurship when you have a big technology disruption that suddenly leads to a bunch of consumer change, right? Internet, iPhone. Well, we kind of hadn't had one of those for a few years. We had a really interesting dynamic, kind of, I'd say, starting around 2014, 2015, where you had these big consumer platforms, Google, Facebook, Apple, et cetera, that had tremendous scale that were also the most innovative companies out there, which is pretty rare, and that controlled access and distribution to all the consumers. So, you know, kind of the most interesting stuff for a few years there was direct-to-consumer commerce companies that were leveraging Facebook to cost-effectively reach consumers. But then you had, because of COVID, a dramatic kind of third moment, if you will. The big moments being, again, internet, mobile, and I think COVID is one that's as big as those two, but really different because it wasn't one new technology platform that suddenly came about. It was that COVID forced worldwide behavior change and then forced rapid adoption of all digital technologies all at once. And I think there's going to be another little mini change right now because whenever it goes back to COVID, some things will normalize and be the same. Other things, well, certainly there's been a bunch of changes in consumer behavior. So those aren't going to go away right away. And so this is a time of tremendous, interesting creativity about what the future is of quote unquote consumers. And and that's why it's breakneck and that's why it's really, really exciting. So we invest in this moment in a few different themes, which we can talk about. I'll just kind of name a few. One is we love investing behind the theme of people for the first time really, and I don't think this is going back to the old way, being able to deinstitutionalize from employment and take control over their livelihoods to do things they want to do. It's been called the passion economy. It's been called a lot of different things, but I don't think that's going back to the way it used to be. We have a couple of different takes on that, maybe somewhat different, but at least things that we think are interesting dynamics around this creator economy or passion economy. One that's kind of current and one that I think is in the future. The current one is it occurs to us that everyone is a direct-to-consumer commerce brand. And here's what I mean by that. When we think about D2C brands, we think about you know companies like Grove Collaborative in our portfolio or Allbirds or whatever. You know, they build a product, they sell it online, they generate a following. 
But if you think about all the companies that kind of fit into that modality, it's not much more than a venture-backed D2C brand. It's influencers who are selling stuff and need like an e-commerce backend to reach their customers. It's restaurants who started selling meal kits and packaged goods to reach their consumers and create a new third revenue stream during COVID. It's the fact that every single restaurant and brick and mortar store has like some kind of delivery and like three or four iPads on their front counter. It's that you can sell if you're a Shopify seller, not only on Shopify, but also at the craft fair and also on Etsy and also on Amazon. And you've got three or four different software applications there that you're trying to manage. It's the fact that whether or not you're an individual seller on Etsy or a D2C brand or a restaurant or whoever, you're acquiring customers across email, Instagram, Facebook, Google. You know, you have this multimodal dynamic on customer acquisition and, and retention as well. So it is a crazy world right now. And there's millions and millions of, and this number is growing, of individuals who are in business for themselves with physical goods. Forget about services, we'll talk about that, but with just with physical goods. And they're super underserved. And we think it's a little bit of a hidden nascent dynamic that is going to lend itself really well to a bunch of new software and features and services that can super serve that customer base. The thing we think about in the future is the idea of multiple identities being expressed in the way that we work and the way that we show up personally. And here's what I mean by that. The example I like to use is that in Japan on Twitter, the average Japanese Twitter user has five Twitter accounts because pseudonymity to bifurcate interests in the presentation of the self is just how that culture has learned to use Twitter. And it's a very interesting culture. Yeah, and we're starting to see that in the US, I would say, and in the Western cultures because you know, you have a certain sort of dynamic on Twitch and you have a certain dynamic on Twitter and you show up a certain way on Facebook. And so we present different parts of ourselves in these different ways. But I don't think people have, it's still sort of clunky. And I, I think in the future, what we're going to have is really ways of making the multiple presentation of ourselves really seamless. I think on the consumer side, on the social side, avatars are going to become a major way that human beings represent themselves to the world in digital means across the traditional social platforms like Twitter that we all know and love today, but also on emerging social platforms that'll grow and scale and the emergence of Roblox and, and Fortnite and stuff like that are all, all sort of speak to that. I think kind of the same thing is going to happen with the future of the creator economy in that while it's awesome to think that in the future, everyone's going to have like one business that they really love because they're going to quit that job they hate and go be an influencer or creator. I think that's going to be really tough for you know everyone to make a good living doing that. I think much more likely is we'll see the rise of easy ways for human beings to express different parts of themselves to small degrees on different platforms and cobble together multiple revenue streams, all of which feed the multiplicity of their soul and their self-actualization. So I'll make a little bit of money on Etsy. I'll make a little bit of money hosting a meditation group. I'll make a little bit of money hosting a session on Flow Club, sharing some of my investing knowledge on Clubhouse. And there'll be space for not just the famous people or the emerging ninjas of the world on Twitch, but also the mid-tier to kind of have a livelihood. And then what that requires is all kinds of products and services largely called for metaphors in the consumer side to enable those now deinstitutionalized individual proprietors of themselves as businesses to be in business safely.
And that's where you're going to get things like, you know, healthcare and the ability to do taxes effectively and people banding together to form sort of guilds on an ad hoc basis to do projects and stuff like that. I'm starting to see companies doing all of those things in different ways. But when you add it all up together, it's an incredible munging of our personal and professional selves that is just very ripe fodder for creativity. And you're already seeing it in the, in the modern workplace. The modern workplace, especially since 2020, more than ever is supercharged by the fact that as the next generation of Gen Z millennials bring their whole selves to work, they really are, are putting all those identities into the pot of their work relationships. And it's, you know, it's a real challenge for the modern CEO to be able to manage all that. So anyway, this is a, it's a heady time. I think for consumer companies. And if, if anyone wants to talk about anything in that world, we are, you know, doors are open. It's a fascinating look into changes that are going on right now, as well as a peak of, I mean, it just, you know, as you were walking through that, there's a bunch of parallels that I'm seeing that line up really neatly there. So it's, it's a neat peek into the future. Just as we wrap up this first part of the interview, for anyone listening that wants to follow you, wants to get in touch with you at Mayfield, where can people find you? Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm Rishi at Mayfield. We're pretty easy to find just right on our website. You can also find me on Twitter at, at Rishi Garg. Those are probably the two best places these days. I show up other places occasionally, but but we'll have more to come pretty soon uh, between those two on what we think and what kind of stuff we're investing in. Yeah. I think we might collaborate on some fun podcast stuff in the, in the near term. So I'm excited totally. about that. Yeah. You've been such a great resource for that. I super appreciate it. Okay. So we're going to close this part of the interview. For anyone that's interested, we're going to explore all the personal side of how Rishi shows up as his best self and everything behind the scenes that help him perform at the highest level in the second part of this interview. So stay tuned for that. For links to everything we discussed, as well as our notes and takeaways from the episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 37. You can also go behind the scenes and learn Rishi's secrets to success in the second portion of this interview. To dive deeper and go beyond this episode, visit outlieracademy.com. There you can find more conversations with incredible guests like Scott Belsky, Kevin Kelly, Erlang Kagi, Paula Ferris, and Mark Sisson. You can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Outlier Debrief. Every week on Friday, we share a few highlights from the latest episode with a few of our favorite books, articles, headlines, and moments from that week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.